Jonah was really the first book that I ever really set out to study, right? God saved me, brought me into the church, and I began to learn about Bible study and what that looks like and what it means to really study the Scripture. And I didn't know anything, and I figured, hey, I know something about Jonah and a big fish, and, uh, and it's only four chapters, so that might be a good place for me to start. And so that's kind of where I began. And, and I can just remember being so encouraged and refreshed by that. And then uh, a few years later, it was a sermon from Jonah chapter 4, and how God used, which was probably really not good exposition, right, on how God used that worm in Jonah's life. If you're not familiar with Jonah 4, you will be before the night's over. And I just remember reflecting on the idea that if God could use that worm, surely he could find a place for me in service to the kingdom. And uh, so this is a book that I have uh, cherished for a long time. It's a book that you're at least somewhat familiar with. I think most folks are familiar at least with chapters 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. We're going to study all four chapters in the time that we have together tonight. Nineveh um, is where uh, Jonah had been called to go and preach the gospel. Um, He did not answer that call positively, as you might remember. Nineveh was to the northeast of Jonah's location when God called him to ministry. Instead, he went down to Joppa and got on a ship and headed for Tarshish. Now again, Nineveh is to the northeast. Tarshish is to the west and somewhat to the south. You probably don't know where Tarshish is. It's in Spain. That's the end of the civilized world in the 7th and 8th century B.C. when Jonah the prophet had been called to go and preach in Nineveh. Jonah literally sought to go to the end of the world in the opposite direction of where God had called him to go. Jonah's rebellion is finally halted by a great fish. That tends to be most folks' focus in reading the book of Jonah. But eventually, Jonah realizes that God is serious about his command. He repents of his rebellion with some assistance from the fish, and obediently goes to Nineveh. That's where most of our knowledge of of, uh, Jonah's life stops. He preaches there, although reluctantly, and is even angry at God's show of grace and mercy toward the Ninevites. Jonah's life lessons don't end when he is vomited forth from the mouth of that great fish. Even as the book of Jonah closes in chapter 4, Jonah is still learning some very uh, difficult lessons about the grace and mercy of God. I've divided the book into key themes tonight. We're going to look at virtually all of the book together. Its brevity allows us to read through a great deal of it. The first key theme here, practical application from the book of Jonah, is this. And this is just good practical advice. When God calls you to do something, do it. It will be painful for you if you don't. Now, I don't know how, this, how you want to work this out in terms of theological systems, but God is not in the business of taking no for an answer. And, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but you're not much of a match for him. When God determines to do something in your life, He will do what he intends to do. We have countless examples in the scripture of those who would kick against the goads in the words of Acts chapter 8, who would push back against what God intends them to do. And God always wins. 
there's a strong likelihood that in our gathering tonight, there's someone who is kicking against the goads of God's design for your life. And I'm just warning you, it's going to be a painful experience for you. When God calls Saul, soon to be Paul, on the Damascus Road, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? We don't probably know what goads are anymore, mostly because they're not a part of our everyday life, but goads were something of spikes placed behind an oxen or a mule in our culture and in some of your lifetimes, where if uh, the uh, livestock that was pulling the plow or whatever it was that needed to be pulled in that particular case sought to back up or to kick against his driver, it would only function to push him further and faster in the direction the master or the driver intended him to go. In other words, that oxen is going where the driver says he's going to go. He can go the easy way or he can go the hard way, but he's going one way or another. When God calls you to go, you should go. I don't know how all this, how this uh, works its way out all, uh, all the time, but I've known people. I, I, there's a, 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 an individual in my life, very special, important person to me, who each time that we're together, because I'm a pastor, he, he, he always opens up almost in tears about a call on his life that he sensed as a young man but has resisted now for more than 40 years and feels as though he still lives under the hand of God's judgment, the pricking of the goad, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and is even until this day resistant to the direction that God had for his life in that particular way. When God tells you to do something, you had better do it. Look with me to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now, there's some cultural and even ethnic background that makes sense of this whole experience of Jonah in our passage. Jonah is a prophet of God in the 7th and 8th century B.C. Now, in the late 8th, 8th century, something major happened in Israel. The, the northern tribes of Israel experienced an invasion from the Assyrians. The time it of Jonah's prophecy, the Assyrians are growing in their power. They're a major political and military threat to the nation of Israel. They're Gentiles, and they are the arch nemesis of the people of Israel. Now, the Israelites are sinking further and further into sin, in desperate need of revival and renewal and even awakening. And yet God calls Jonah to go to their enemy to go to the Assyrians and to, and to preach to them the urgency of repentance. Ultimately, the Assyrians of Nineveh repent of their sin and are uh, restored. God restrains or relents his judgment against them. Now think about that. If, if, if I'm understanding Jonah's reluctance to go, it's largely related to his prejudice for those people. 
God, here we are in need of restoration. Here we are in need of mercy. Here we are in need of compassion. And you want me to go to those people that I can't stand up there in Assyria and afford them the privilege of repenting of their sin, turning back your wrath against them. That's a considerable factor that cannot be overlooked in the book of Jonah. It's his prejudice toward the Assyrian people that prevents him from being willing to go up and to preach as God had called him to do. And as we said, he goes or he flees in the direction of Tarshish. Tarshish, again, is in Spain. Yes, the Spain that we're familiar with as a part of Europe, that's a long way across the Mediterranean Sea, and it's at the very end of the civilized world. In verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and had fallen into a deep sleep. There seems to be some intentionality on the part of the author here, right? You'll notice that in verse 3, his goal is to flee to Tarshish, and so he goes down to Joppa. And then once boarding the ship, he goes down into the ship. And then in verse 5, the Bible says Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel. When Jonah ran from God, what we're having communicated to us is that he goes down, down, is almost broken apart. In verse 6, the captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. There, there's a certain degree of spiritual blindness that comes with rebelling against the will of God. Jonah is on a boat with a bunch of pagans. And the pagan ship captain, offering sacrifices to gods that cannot save, seems to have more spiritual discernment than does Jonah. It's the pagan captain that goes down into the belly of the boat to say, Wake up, man. We're all about to die here, and you're likely a considerable part of this calamity that's befallen us on the sea. And we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. And they said to him, tell us, who is the blame for this trouble we're in? What's your business, and where are you from? What's your country, and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. Not only is there a spiritual blindness, there's an obstinance here, a stubbornness here. I will not do, in essence, this is what Jonah says, I will not do what God has directed me to do. In verse 11, they said to him, What should we do to you to calm this sea against, that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And then there's a brazenness that comes, right? So there's a blindness, just an ignorance to what God is doing in our life. Often judgment comes. There's a reason for us to turn back, to relent from our foolishness so that God would relent from his judgment against us. We just can't see the ways he's at work in us. And then we become stubborn. We become obstinate over time. We're just going to press through no matter how heavy the hand of God's judgment is. We're just going to do what we want to do without regard to what the consequences look like. And then there, there, there comes a point where we're just sort of brazen in our sin, brazen in our rebellion. He answered them in verse 12, 
Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it may quiet down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Jonah would rather be thrown in the sea than to do what God wants him to do. And here, here's the, the scary thing about Jonah's experience is that if, if you're aware, watching, engaged with the lost world around you, there are people that are following this progression likely as a part of your life. In, in the beginning, maybe they're just blind and ignorant to what God is doing in their life, but over the course of time, they cannot deny that, that the cards are stacked against them. But in spite of the destruction that their decisions continue to work in their life, they persist in their foolishness again and again. Like a dog to his vomit, they go back and they go back and they go back and they go back. And then there's a hopelessness in the end of that, right? And sometimes reasonably so, there's a hopelessness. Jonah says, just throw me in the sea. Verse 13, the Bible says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, Jonah was in the fish for three days and for three nights. We tend to think of this fish as God's judgment against Jonah. I would have you to note that not only is this fish God's judgment against Jonah, it also happens to be a salvation when tossed from the ship. And sometimes God works in that way in our life as well. Often it's the case that God's judgment in our life is our salvation. Apart from the heavy judgment of God, apart from hitting the wall, apart from reaching the bottom, apart from being grabbed up, snatched up by our collar, and reminded of our brokenness, uh, being prompted to consider the depth of our great need for God. Apart from that hand of judgment interrupting and disrupting our life, we would never, we would never be able to clearly see how desperately we need God to be at work in our life. And so God puts Jonah in the belly of a great fish. Now, this is the part where um, people are intrigued by this fish. And the great question that seems to hang over the study of the book of Jonah in most Bible study groups is, what kind of fish was it? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. And the second part of the answer is, it does not matter. It was a great fish. Sent by, I don't know if it would be any more or less impressive if it, if it was a whale, if it was a great fish, if it was the white whale of Moby Dick. Be enthralled with the fact that God had him thrown overboard and put in the belly of a great fish as an act of both judgment and salvation simultaneously. God is at work powerfully in Jonah's life, both to chastise and to rescue now, all of chapter 2 is focused on Jonah's prayer of repentance. It's easy to pray prayers of repentance in the belly of a fish, right? And so God is often very gracious in placing us. We cannot discount, nor should we, the, the, the power of God to work 
under the most difficult of circumstances. It was true in my case. God used the brokenness of my body and, and the breaking of my pride to bring me to faith in him. And with the most difficult cases that I've dealt with, the folks that I've been most earnest to reach and have seen reached with the gospel, their experience of salvation has always involved some manner of suffering in their life. I'm telling you, when God says go, you better go. But unfortunately, we're foolish, right? We're sinful people. We're spiritually blind people. We just can't see. And there are very, very few who, apart from being broken physically and spiritually, simply cannot see the goodness of God that is so clearly before us. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. Here's what he said. I called to the Lord in my distress. I bet you did, Jonah. And he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol, that is the belly of the grave, and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Jonah has a good theological understanding of, of judgment in his life, right? Sometimes I, in conversation with people and there's difficult circumstances that unfold in their life, and we want to be careful about how we understand this, but most people want to, to give that over to God somehow allowing something in our life. God is ordering the events of our life. They may be painful. There may be suffering involved in that. God has superintended a good purpose. He is well motivated. He has our interest in mind. But there is no moment when God takes his hand off the wheel and just lets the rudder run and the ship have its course. God's hand is at the wheel of our lives at every moment. He is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He enjoys lordship, full charge over our life. Jonah's is clear about this. God, your waves and your billows have surrounded me. This is your action in my life that's brought me to the pit of despair. Your breakers, your billows swept over me. But I said in verse 4, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The waters and foundations of the mountains, the earth with its prison bars closed behind me forever. But you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, it appears to me that Jonah makes a confessional statement in the conclusion of his prayer that he hasn't yet come to understand. Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. Do you know what that means? That means that salvation is of the Lord. That means that salvation is the business of God. He is in the business of saving, and his business is good. It belongs to him. He is the steward of our salvation. He holds it in his hand. And he freely and he graciously grants it to those who trust and believe on his name. Salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to him. Now, if salvation is of the Lord, 
then it's entirely his prerogative how he discharges that salvation. In other words, if God wants to save Israel or God wants to save Assyria, it's none of Jonah's business. If God wants to save the vilest sinner among us, there is nothing that would prevent him from doing so in his great power. But God does just that in chapter 3. And you might be surprised to learn that Jonah didn't get excited about it. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Not only is he not excited in the end, but he doesn't appear to me to be very excited in the beginning. He says, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. We don't know entirely what it means to say that Nineveh was a three-day walk. It may mean that it would have taken three days to walk around the city, but it doesn't appear that that was likely the case. It might just mean that it's a kind of a day journey up to the city given its positioning. It might mean that there's a day's worth of paperwork to be done, and then there's a day's worth of travel getting around the city in order to be able uh, to preach the message that God has called you to preach. And interestingly, there seems to be some archaeological suggestion that uh, there would have been a process for entry into Nineveh and then a vetting of the prophet's message, what was going to be said among the people and its benefit for the people. In other words, there's a, fair, a fairly thorough process here for entering into the city. Maybe that's what is in view here when the Bible talks about a three-day journey. We don't entirely know. But we do know that for three days, Jonah set out, walked the city, and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he used a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now let's think about that for just a moment. Here you have a decree from the king of Nineveh that the entirety of Nineveh are to put on sackcloth and ashes. A sackcloth is just a sackcloth. If you think about a potato sack with a head hole and two armholes, that's about the size of sackcloth. And put ashes on your head or your face. These are to demonstrate a, a, a season of sorrow. You, you would desire to look outwardly the way you feel inwardly. That's the idea of putting on sackcloth and ashes. And the king of Nineveh calls for a fast among the people of Nineveh. Now, what does that mean for us? Practically, reading those verses together, how do we make application or understand what's unfolding in the city of Nineveh? Our tendency is, I think, our tendency is to read passages like that and many others like it. I'm picking on this passage because this is where we are. But to read many other like it involving kings and leaders of varying degrees in Old and New Testament. 
and to take away from that that our expectation ought to be or, or that the normal way that God's, God works is from the top down within a society. And I just got to have you note tonight, reading this passage because of so many conversations that I've been a part of over the past few months and because of so much of the consternation that seems to exist among Christian folks, this is not normal. This is the exception. It's really a rare thing that God works from the top down within a people to bring revival and repentance. The, the typical way, the usual way that God works is from the bottom up. And we happen to be a society, a culture, that is especially geared toward work from the bottom to the top, not work from the top to the bottom. So if, if you're waiting for some policy change or active legislation to invoke the hand of God's favor in our country, you're going to be waiting for a very, very long time. The good news is you don't have to wait for that. God is pleased to work among us in the most powerful of ways. Now, here's the other side. That's the earthly perspective. But there's a spiritual perspective to the application of this passage as well. Whereas God is at work, it seems, in the world from the bottom up, from the least of these to the top of power structures. Within the kingdom to which we belong, God is indeed at work from the highest power structure down to the grassroots level. We are not citizens of this world. We belong to the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And in that kingdom, there has already been legislation written. Policy has been passed and universally adopted from the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords that has bearing not only in the holy city, but in every city, among God's people everywhere, among people of every tribe and tongue and nation. The problem is we often take that spiritual application, what relates to the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus, and try to draw application from that to this earthly experience that's so visible around us. And those two could not be more in conflict with one another. We're not waiting for policy change. We're not waiting who has already enacted his policy. He has already been coronated as king. And he will never lose by election. He will always be king. My point is, do not lose sight. Do not lose sight of what a strange experience it is. How distant we are from home in this cruel and crooked world. That's how you make applications of passages like that. Now, in verse 10, the Bible says, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do them, and he did not do it. Now, we find out in the conclusion of chapter 4 that there are at least 120,000 people in Nineveh. And if God ever grants that Brother Wade gets to be a part of a, the proclamation of the gospel such that 120,000 people are saved from their sin, I don't care if they're Assyrians or Israelites or striped like zebras. I'm just going to be excited. But that is not the response of Jonah in chapter 4. In fact, the Bible says in verse 1 that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. There is such bitterness in Jonah's heart toward the people of Assyria. He knew if he went there and told them about the gospel, told them about repentance and grace and mercy to be found in Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if they turned from their sin, God would give them just what they asked for. He'd give them grace. God, I knew this is what you were going to do when I came up here, and now you've done it. I had a man, a, a, a very fine man, uh, I would still count him as a friend who was a member in the first church that I pastored. And, uh, you know, I was a lot uh, closer to the old Wade's life in those days than what I am now. And I'd had a relatively close friend who had at one time had a somewhat romantic relationship with one of his girls. And he lived not far from where we were there in the church where I was serving. And uh, we would go out together and knock on doors and share the gospel. And one night I had the idea of going there and sharing the gospel with him, and he just refused. He just wouldn't do it on the same grounds that Jonah didn't want to go to Assyria. I know. If we tell him about the gospel, he believes. I know what God will do. God will forgive him of his sin. God will save him. And he just couldn't make himself want that for someone who had hurt someone so close to him in the past. The root of bitterness is a deadly serious and very dangerous thing. And if you think that you're immune to that, you've got another thing coming. Jonah just couldn't bear with the notion of Assyrians being saved while the people of Israel perished under the hand of God's judgment. And there is yet a lesson to be learned for Jonah. Verse 4, the Lord asked him, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God appointed a plant. It grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was a Baptist, wasn't he? God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said to him, You cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and did not grow. In other words, it didn't belong to you, Jonah. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who can't distinguish between their right and their left hand as well as many animals. I think that means not only are there a lot of people there, but there's a lot of livestock there, and all the people and all the livestock belong to me. The plant didn't belong to you, Jonah, and you're ready to die over its absence. Is it not right that the father would care for 120,000 Ninevites, the livestock of that city, all of which truly belonged to him. 
it is always the case that the compassion that God has for the lost exceeds the compassion his people have for the lost. And it ought to be our daily pursuit to share the mind, the vision, the heart, the mercy, the compassion of the Father for the lost around us. You know, I guess over time you experience things in life and in ministry, and it is really easy sometimes, I think, in, in ministry, but in life in general, to kind of get this us versus the world mentality. And I, I've had the good fortune or the misfortune of having a few knuckleheads over the year in ministry. If you're not really careful, you get bitter toward that kind of thing, you get frustrated with that. But I, I've learned, and I don't always act according to the lessons that I've learned, but I've learned over the course of time that most of the people that hurt people are hurting people. And if you can manage to look beyond that and seek to minister to the, to the real and more pressing need, it can be pretty amazing what God does in the lives of some of those folks who can be the biggest thorn in the flesh you ever dreamed of ever having. I think that's true in most all of our lives. If you can manage to look beyond how you've been offended, and the foolishness that they've involved themselves in, and think objectively, think clearly, think compassionately with the mind and, the, and see with the eyes of the Father, you might find that some of your biggest headaches are some of the greatest opportunities for God to do something pretty extraordinary in your life and the life of the lost people in your life. Jonah fled the call of God from the port city of Joppa. God called Jonah to cross-cultural missions from the city of Joppa. Joppa appears only one more time in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9, the apostle Peter raises a woman from the dead, and immediately after that, God calls Peter to go to a man named Cornelius, a Gentile man named Cornelius, in the city of Joppa, and to share with him the message of the gospel. God calls Jonah to cross-cultural missions in Joppa, and God calls Peter to cross-cultural missions in the city of Joppa. Now, this is a revolutionary idea for Peter, a Jew by birth, uh, deeply committed to the practice of Moses' law and all of the rituals and practices involved in that, obviously radically changed by the power of the gospel, but not yet having come to terms with what it means for Jesus to have sent them forth even to the ends of the earth. But as God reveals to him in a vision that it's to Cornelius he is to go and that what he has called uncommon, he is not to call common, Peter begins to come to terms with the reality that God is not just interested in saving people who look like me, who dress like me, who act like me, who enjoy the things I enjoy, but people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Is, isn't it interesting that here we have an example of God calling his people, calling his prophet to international cross-cultural missions in the Old Testament. This whole idea that we don't get interested in the nations until the New Testament is just a misunderstanding of the Scripture. God's actively involved. And the whole reason God works among Israel is that the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, that the world would see the goodness and favor that God had shown to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Given God's love for the nations, what should we do? Here are seven suggestions before we dismiss. One, you learn about the Ninevehs around you. You learn about where the needs are. 
you have real opportunity this year, given the way that we're going to be limited in traveling internationally, to look for some Ninevehs that you can get in your four-door sedan and drive to. Look around for neighborhoods, for communities, for enclaves of lost people. Maybe enclaves of people that are committed to another world religion. More and more in America, you can find Muslim communities and neighborhoods, Hindu communities and neighborhoods, communities and neighborhoods that are so intensely violent that no one is going there with any religious message. You can find Ninevehs that are within a driving distance. Secondly, show hospitality to the Jonas. Be an encourager to the Jonas. There's plenty of discouragement for the Jonas. If Jonah had ran into some of the people that I ran into early in ministry, they would have probably said, Jonah, why are you going over there fooling with those Assyrians? They've always been that way, and they're going to always be that way. But be an encouragement and show hospitality to the Jonahs in your life or the Jonahs even within the body. Thirdly, give support to Jonah and his work. And not just financially. You give so generously. You are a remarkably generous church with regards to international missions, and I, I, I would just encourage you in that and celebrate that, and, and it's, a, it's an example to be followed after. But there are more ways to give than just financially. Sometimes giving your time. Uh, sometimes you go on a short-term mission trip, not so much to engage with the people of that country or culture, but with the missionaries who are serving there outside of their country and culture to be an encouragement to them or uh, even to their family and extended family. Give support to Jonah and his work in any conceivable way. Number four, pray for the Jonas as they go. Pray for missionaries. You know guys and gals who are on the field and serving. Pray for them. Lift them up. Fifth, reach out to the Ninevites in your city. All of you got crazy family. All of you do. Uh, you might not claim them, but you got kin folks that have lost their mind. And you're probably tired of fooling with them. I got, got a list of them. I'm tired of fooling with all of them. And I'm really at a place where the only reason I fool with them is because of Jesus. That's the only reason. But that's enough reason. So you continue to pursue them with the gospel. Find the Ninevites in your life and pray for them and share with them. Six, build the church to support the work of Jonas and the reaching of Nineveh's. In, in other words, we're about sharing the message of the gospel and positioning ourselves as a body so that we're able to move nimbly and efficiently to see the world reached. Number seven and number last, go to a Ninevite and tell them about the life-changing message of the gospel. That no matter how far you've run, no matter what you've done, no matter how horrible you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how mean or nasty you've been, no matter what's in your background or your past, no matter how unlikely it may seem, that if they will look to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace and mercy, they'll always find it in a loving and benevolent God. Go to the Ninevites in your life and share with them the message of the gospel. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for this time to share together as your people. God, this is always an encouragement to me, a service that I enjoy, and I hope it, it serves uh, your people in the same way, that they're refreshed by this time, a more casual, relaxed time to study in your word, to consider the ways that you're at work and what you have to say to us. Help us as we read your word to always hear clearly what you'd have us to hear and what you'd have us to do. 
God, find us faithful in the very task that we've talked about here tonight. God, forgive us where we come short. Forgive us of focusing on the things that won't matter a hundred years from now. And help us to settle our heart, our attention, our time, our talents, our treasure, and all our energy on the things that would matter a million years from now. Keep us faithful in that work. In Jesus' name, amen.